Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Chris Mancini of White Cat Productions. We talk about failure and trying again, uh, starting new businesses in the pandemic and a whole bunch of other things. He's doing a Kickstarter at the moment, which I think finishes this weekend. So if you want to jump on that and support him, uh, you can. Uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation. I always enjoy talking to Chris. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, other projects I'm doing, I should do the plugs as always. Uh, I mean, as I always forget to do properly. Uh, the last post is my daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. It is nonsense and I love it dearly and it's eating my brain. Uh, also, Savage is available on Amazon Prime uh, for streaming. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can get it there or you can um, do the free month subscription um, in order to get access without giving Jeff Bezos your money. Or you can get the trilogy, the Alice Fraser trilogy um, podcast version of Savage, the Resistance and Empire for free anywhere. Thank you so much to my Patreon supporters. This period of time is so incredibly uncertain for so many people in my industry and having such a base of incredible people supporting my work has been genuinely the difference between not having anything and having some security. So uh, both kind of emotionally and financially, it is something that I am astonished by every day, my luck and my good fortune to have made this connection with these people. Um which is you, uh, if it is you and not you, if it's not you, but uh, also just the support of people who enjoy the podcast, who share it on Twitter or share it with their friends or who just enjoy it quietly at home. It's such a big deal to me. And um, that's what I wanted to say. That is what I wanted to say. Uh, I'll, I'll be on the bugle this week as well. So that's fun. I'm going to let you get on with listening to the podcast um, with Chris Mancini. Thank you for listening as ever. I'll be back next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, who are you and what are you drinking? Hi, this is Chris Mancini. I am a writer slash podcaster and I am drinking a iced green tea, but it's infused with uh, blackberry water. So it is a delight and it's keeping me cool in a uh, hot summer in los angeles right now well i am having a warm traditional japanese matcha i got after years and years and years of not having it i got one of those bamboo whisks so that i could make it properly um and that's a fun and nice thing and i have a very beautiful uh, bowl here i always sort of thought if i was if I were ever to become a bajillionaire, that would be the only thing. I, I'm not very object-oriented, but I would collect probably Japanese tea things because they're so beautiful and relaxing to look at. Well, that's actually a very noble goal for being a billionaire because you're not—you didn't say yacht or anything else. <laughs> I mean, it's—it's it's, uh, you know, tea and ceramic is carbon neutral, so I think you'll be okay. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I, uh, what have you, what have you been wrestling with of late? Oh, there's been a bunch of stuff, um, you know, pandemic aside, you know, mm -hmm. which we've all been wrestling with. Uh, been trying to kind of relaunch everything with starting a new company, a new website, a new store. And last time I was on the show, I talked about a Kickstarter. 
And I actually relaunched it now, and I'm in the middle of it. And I thought, what better time than in a pandemic to do some crowdfunding? Mm-hmm. I think that was really, <laughs> really a, a good idea. But uh, I, it's interesting that there's certain things that uh, you just got to kind of jump in and say, look, I need to do this again. I need to try and, you know, try, try again. It didn't work the first time. Retooled, changed it. So it's been a mix of trying to launch a new company, a new website, a new podcast and a crowdfunding campaign for a comic book all kind of at the same time. I didn't want it to all line up at the same time, but with the pandemic and people's schedules, it just kind of happened that way. And I was like, well, I can't just not do stuff. I have to trust, you know, the timing has been very challenging, but I've been just trying to move forward with everything. But the focus now is on the, the comic book relaunch. So how do you, how do you structure your time around that? How do you prioritize? How do you, because often with a startup, it can be all consuming and people are in general better at starting things than they are at finishing them. So I guess, how do you balance out all those things? How do you progress everything uh, along as you go? What, what does your day look like in a really practical sense? It's um, it's a mishmash of different tasks and uh, phone calls and emails, but it's one of the things that I need to work on and it's organization. Like if you've got a, a ton of things in the fire, you really have to prioritize and set certain amounts of time for each thing. And that's one thing that I always struggle with. I'm like, okay, well, I need to get this revision done for a pitch based on another comic book that has to be done. But then I also have to work on launching this. I have to talk to a sound person. I have to uh, talk to the editor of the comic book and then the social media guy of the, of the new campaign and all of this stuff combined. And I find sometimes that I do like one of each, instead of sitting down and doing one task completely, I'll do 50% on one task and 50% on another. And I know that's not the most efficient way of doing things. I know in my head, but I still sometimes I do it anyway. Do you have a, a to-do list or a calendar or a, you know, do you have a protocol or is it just the things that come as they come? It's the things that come as they come. It's interesting. You're hitting all the things that I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and here's how it's actually working. But it, it's uh, the thing, I've been doing this long enough to know that no matter what you do, there's going to be complications along the way. I'm like, okay, relaunching a website, something's going to break. And sure enough, it was, you know, the cart couldn't get that going. And those things I just kind of expect. So those timelines kind of overlap with other timelines that you're starting. So the, that's always been a, a juggling act and a management of time and resources because some of the stuff is out of your hands. Some things you can do, like if I'm writing a new podcast, I can set that time. But if I'm waiting for a programmer to fix a shopping cart on my site, then there, I have to I have to wait. So if I could figure out a better way of managing all of those times and doing things when, when I'm waiting for someone else to finish something and doing things where I know this deadline is coming up quicker, I would definitely be um, a little better off. And I think what I'm saying, Alice, is that I need four assistants. No, you need one of those ladies and you see them at every festival. You know the ladies I'm talking about, the ladies yes. who are just I, like I feel like in a really weird way and I'm complete this is off no data whatsoever. Just my gut feeling is they are evolved from the women who used to ha- do housekeeping for castles. Um where you would have to, you know, you they're just I, I remember walking into a festival um earlier this uh, last year 
and this woman was saying, okay, you have to park over there. You want to put your tent over there because you've got kids. You take a break. You need to put some sun cream on and just mm-hmm. that kind of mind. And, and in, we need to air the sheets. And in six months, we'll need yes. jam. So someone better go pick the bl- blackberries now. You, that kind of, you need one of those ladies on your Absolutely, side. Absolutely, I do, yes. Those women you know, are magic. They can just yeah. make mm-hmm. anything happen. I mean, that's even like almost like a new position, life coordinator. <laughs> really, something like that. <laughs> you really need. I need you just to handle everything. <laughs> just yeah, just make sure everything's happening, and then I yes. can relax and do it. And you think about all mm-hmm. the. I mean, this is sort of a, a hobby horse of some many feminist feminist academics who are friends of mine. Of the thank you to my wife at the beginning of a book where they say thank you to my wife who yes uh, did all of the research and typed all my notes out and wrote out everything by hand three times and did all the translations. That, cheers. And they never named the wife. They're just like, thanks to my wife. <laughs> well, I, um, I've actually been guilty of that, but not completely. I've definitely named my wife. And when I wrote my book about uh, being a father, my wife was um, very much involved. So <laughs> Really? That's nice of her. <laughs> so uh, I definitely... But that's an interesting point. I definitely named names there. It's a it's it is a fascinating thing how much of of that kind of backup work and invisible work is is just so labor intensive. And when people you when you find yourself faced with it, that that slogging work of organizing and and work streaming, it's not not what we as comedians as sort of individualists tend to be geared towards. No. No, and that is 100% true. What's interesting about it, too, is when there's a thousand little details to get something off the ground, like let's say a new company and a website, everything from starting a Twitter feed to um, getting the first project launched, you do work and work and work, and you feel like nothing is getting done and nothing is getting finished. And then a day comes and you're like, oh, it's up and it's done. And you realize it wasn't the work from that day that got everything up. It was the work for the last you know couple of weeks or months that you know you you, uh, you forget sometimes that you actually did so it's a cumulative effect that we i think we as artists forget sometimes you know we could work on something for hours and hours and days it's like writing a script or anything else it doesn't feel like you're making progress then you hit that kind of tipping point you're like oh my god i'm half done or something like that but i feel yeah. like uh, wow our, look how much uh, i've done yeah yeah, our artist brains sometimes get an, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost invisible to us sometimes. It feels like, you know, I've been working hours and hours on this for weeks and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, I, I was working hours and hours and weeks on that. Yeah, and now it's paying off. And then sometimes it yes. doesn't pay off. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> which is the thing that's happened yeah. with you, which is you're now relaunching yes. this, <laughs> this Kickstarter. What does that feel yes. like? You know, it's interesting. It's like I've I've been pretty successful with Kickstarters. I had pretty much three that did very well. One of them was, of course, Earbuds, the first comic book, Long Go and Far Away, and then even the first year of the LA Podcast Festival. So they they all they were all work and you know, a lot, a lot of work and a lot of stress. But I thought, okay, well, after three, four shouldn't be too hard. And it was one of those things where it just wasn't getting where it needed to go. And also I, I picked some really bad time. I picked right at the holidays because we oh. were ending comedy film nerds. So I wanted to kind of have that coincide with the Kickstarter. So I started it too late. 
and it was ending uh, right around the holidays. So no one, no one has any you know money money to to pledge for the holidays. And and everyone even says that have done Kickstarters never do it during the holidays. So I tried to buck mm-hmm. the trend, and the trend bucked me instead. So what we did is now that Comedy Film Nerds was over, I didn't have that platform anymore. We concentrated more on the comedy and the comic book fans. And I'm still obviously doing podcasts still, <laughs> but uh, well, what we did was uh, we broke the book up into smaller parts so people could pledge less and we could get the, to the goal quicker. So that's kind of what we were doing. We retooled the entire campaign, but also with COVID-19, there was things that we never even thought of. Like we had to eliminate any reward that had like a show or like a lunch or anything or a tour of like the animation uh, company Starburns that that does like Rick and Morty and animals. And we, we had one of the rewards was a tour there because they're also publishing the book. We eliminated all of that. So it became like a no contact uh, project to also make people feel safer, too. So uh, including the people involved, like oh, the, with the artists and, and with me writing and the artists and the letters, everyone works on their uh, on their own in their homes anyway. But we wanted to keep the pledgers safe, too. So we actually uh, took all of those out, which was a double edged sword because those were the highest level tiers. That's the way you get the money the quickest. Yeah, because we had everything from like a fifteen hundred dollars for like a tour or something like that. Like someone got that for the last uh, Kickstarter. It was $1,500 to be on the last CFN show, the last live one. But Uh, we don't have any of those tiers anymore. So we need to get more of the smaller pledges to kind of make up for that. But we're doing pretty well. I mean, we've got, it goes till May 31st. And we've got about uh, about 2,500 to go as of this recording. So I think we're pretty close. I'm going to go out on a limb by the time this airs. We're almost there. We've hit goal. (laughs) it's it's interesting that stuff what rewards you can offer when people want Mm -hmm. to support you because this is something i'm facing with my patreon right now i need to rejigger the tiers that i have or the things that i'm offering to people because the longer that i've done patreon the more that i've realized how how it's not actually transactional for the most part that that i think one of the things that's happened with the virus is a lot of people have come to me, a lot of colleagues, com- comedy co- colleagues, saying, oh, you do Patreon. Can you tell me how to do, how to do it and what right. it is? And so that's mm-hmm. required me to... Maybe that ref- first question, that second question should be first. Yes, so, to, yeah. to re- reflect on it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they know it's a thing. They know it's a thing that can help yeah. support you when mm-hmm. you're not doing live work. But f- for me, it's been a, a, a period of reflecting on what actually it is that this because it's a very specific relationship that you have with with yes. your supporters in that way and particularly people who've signed up to support you in a regular way they're invested in your career in a way that your normal quote unquote fans aren't that they are and it's not transactional they're not getting a a, a product for from it for the most part no in fact, it, it's, the rewards it, that have a product are less popular for sure, especially because it's a product that, like, sometimes if it's a T-shirt, you just kind of get it once. Yeah. And then that's it. That's uh, So it seems to be it's more about supporting you as an artist and what do they get in return that's extra that other people aren't getting. I mean, that seems to be kind of like the the code for Patreon. But as we've seen, everything can change. People, Things are evolving. People want different things. Like something from a, uh, a crowd crowdfunding or patreon 
that somebody may have wanted two years ago may not be what they want now, or maybe something that like, well, I, I have more money now, I can up my pledge, or I have less money now, I have to lower my pledge, but I still want to support you. So one of the mistakes I think as artists that we make, and I've certainly made it, is that you think the same thing that works one time is going to work uh, forever. And that's, that's simply not the case. We always, uh, we always have to be evolving and changing with uh, everything else. Well, comedians are, I think, the most accountable of, of, most, uh, of most art forms, often. That's a very limited statement that I've just made there. <laughs> I mean that we, we tend not to get away with much because we're constantly testing our hypotheses in front of a live audience. Obviously, this is pre-virus chat, but right. <laughs> I feel like you could More very folks. easily sell a stable of comedians to an advertising firm as people who understand the minds of the public more than any other art form because you're in you're talking to people every day i think that's completely true absolutely and it's the one of the only um art forms that you're literally getting instant feedback and where it's like you tell a joke you know immediately if it worked or not and it's even like film tv even painting there's that delay and that distance from the audience because you could be working on a movie for a year or two and no one's going to see it until it's literally over. Whereas you go and do stand-up, you're, you're literally, you're performing a joke and you know immediately how it lands. Uh, I, I think that's a, 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 another really good point about just what, as stand-ups, that what we do and, and how it's important. And it's also one of those things that, I know people are doing some digital stand-up right now with digital clubs and performing. And the thing about stand-up is that it really is that live interaction uh, between the audience and the performer. It, it, it's, it's different than anything else. It, it just is. I mean, you can have live performance of music or plays, and those are all different, and they have different feels to it. Like, like I wouldn't compare going to see Hamilton to going to see you know, a stand-up comic, but ultimately they're both live performance, but it doesn't matter. I go there with different expectations and I get different things out of them. And uh, I think with stand-up, this is why I did it for uh, so many years, and when people would always come up to me after shows, it was such an amazing personal experience that I think it, it's explored through podcasts. And as, as you know, podcasts have been driven a lot by comedians. Uh, yes. when, especially in, when it, when it first started. So I think whatever that magic is of that connection between the comedian and the audience, the comedians were able to translate that earliest to the podcast space. Yes. And you can tell, you can tell the difference in, and, and there's plenty of comedians doing terrible, just banter podcasts that aren't that yes. interesting, but you can tell the difference between radio people who've tried to make a radio show accessible via a podcast feed and then and people who really understand the medium, which is very personal and very intimate in in a similar way to to stand up, you are talking directly to your audience. you're 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 talking to them as people and you as a person as well. You're not a you're you're not a, a, pr a product in that way you're not a pre-recorded video yes yeah exactly you're not a pre-recorded <laughs> video oh how heartbreaking but the this is one of the fascinating things now watching actors and celebrities trying to connect on on social media or 
try to have this personal connection with their fans if they don't have people telling them what to say many of them not all but many of them seem to be completely lost for how to connect as humans with other humans because they've never done it before and it's that kind of thing that they're literally just uh learning and it's something that as comedians that's the first thing we learn (laughs) is to how to connect with people i remember when i was first doing stand-up um you know, I, I got great advice from other headliners that were performing with me. And one of the greatest pieces of advice I got when I was first starting out, they said to me, it doesn't matter what you're saying at first, get them to like you first. If they like you, you can get away with saying a lot more things than if they don't like you. So he said, and it goes with crowd work, scripted stand up, improv, anything like that. The you can get over a lot of other obstacles if you can get people to like you first. If people like you first, if they don't like you, they're not going to accept what you say. And this kind of goes way past stand-up to other things, too. But I, I think that was great advice for a stand-up because we live or die whether somebody likes us on stage or not. And it's usually in the first five minutes. That's fascinating because I have had a, I, I have had a similar philosophy, but I've approached it slightly from the other side which is you have to let them see you. The, you. Because going up on stage is terrifying, um, your temptation is to put up a front or to either come across as too polished or to have this kind of fear in you or sometimes with an audience you don't like them when you're about to go on stage. <laughs> and so for me, the, the, the practice or the process of getting better on stage, particularly in difficult rooms, is to... Be very, very um, decided before I go on stage. And as I go on stage, I am going to enjoy this. I'm going to let them see me enjoy this. I'm going to like myself. Uh, And I'm going to enjoy the process. And if it doesn't work, if I put out a joke and it dies, I'm going to enjoy that too. I'm going to let that be its own pleasure. And for and, me, that has been the surest route to getting better on stage. Is well, is that. It, it's yeah, because what you're doing is you're making sure um, you're being genuine at first, and being genuine is the first step to having people like you for sure. It's the uh, most important so, thing. If you can fake yes. it, you've got it made. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, that is very true. If you can fake being likable and fool everyone geez man what a career you would have <laughs> in any field <laughs> brutal brutal <laughs> yeah my, my my skill is that people can't see through me so wow can you teach that no <laughs> what else have you been wrestling with um you know with everything else it's uh, for sure you know i had um uh, my father passed away recently, and mm. that's that's definitely uh, affected me. And um, one of the things I, I count myself fortunate about is that he passed away right before the pandemic kind of locked everything down. So we were able to have a funeral and bury him and get that closure because, you know, a lot of people now, unfortunately, they're not necessarily able to do that. I mean, it, it's everything's just been turned on its ear. I mean, uh, there, there's no schedule for a pandemic where people people are still dying from other causes and and it's just it's sad. I mean, it was sad to lose my father, but you know, little little blessings. I was I was grateful that we were able to at least say goodbye to him. 
Yeah. But that's that's still tough. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly hard thing to lose a parent, and it's the thing. <laughs> if we're lucky, we get to live to see our parents die. Yes. But it's still a really hard thing, and it your relationship with your parents or your parent figures shapes the way that you see everyone in the world. It is fundamentally sort of definitive way in which you engage with the world that is structured by your relationships with your parents and how they were to you when you were even the smallest baby before you start having any memories at all, just whether you're safe or not and whether you can trust people or not, those things get wired in by virtue of your of your parental uh, your parental relationships they become and they feel like when they die they feel like this fundamental structural part of you is gone yeah and, and it's it's a cliche but it's true you always want a little more time like my father was old and not well i mean he made it to 82 so it was a life well lived but you always think well, it would have been nice to have another year or two or, you know, if we could have gone on one more trip or if he was still, you, you always look at it that way, no matter what age someone passes away, I think, as a, if it's a parent. Has it, not, feel free not to answer this uh, if it's if it's um, something that makes you feel un- uncomfortable or upset or anything, but has it changed the way that you relate to your children in nature or quality? Not the actual event of his passing, no. I don't think it has. I mean, it, it, it's more along the lines of, you know, the qualities that, you know, I saw in my father and how he interacted with my kids and just that that kindness and generosity and honesty. You want to pass that along as a father, for sure. So I think that was more of a uh, a gradual influence rather than anything that happened at the end. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, for me, I don't, I don't have children, but that's one of one of the sad things I remember when I when Mum was dying of of standing at the foot of her bed in the hospital and just thinking I should get pregnant, <laughs> you know. I should. <laughs> you know, no emotion is wrong when you're or no emotion <laughs> is wrong when you're going through something like that. So yeah, that, so that she could see that she see that there was going to be a baby. You know, there was something about mm-hmm. that that felt very like it was very primal, very kind of. I don't know what what that urge was, and of course I didn't do it. But uh, in that moment, it was just yeah, yeah. I should definitely, I should definitely get pregnant. <laughs> it's our uh, our ways as mortal beings of trying to be immortal. It's uh, it's really it's part of that. Is when you see a parent die, you definitely feel more mortal, and when you see your children, you feel a little bit of that immortality because you're passing part of you on to them. So I, f- I feel like that reaction that you had was uh, very accurate <laughs> in, in the moment uh, from a primal uh, point of view of how we're hardwired as uh, human beings. I just thought I, in part, I think it was that in part, I think it was like, Oh, to make her happy, you know, to be nice <laughs> to, her, to know that um, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the great, sort of sadnesses of my life is that she didn't get to meet her uh, granddaughter my my twin brother's kid uh because that would have made her very happy but it's it is it is a good reminder of the qualities that are important and the things that you love about your parents are things that you want to pass on to your children or, or to the world you know you want to embody those qualities because that's the only way that they live on 
And I, I think sometimes you get the question too, like, well, how could you bring children into a world like this? And, you know, I, I give the same answer that a lot of people give because I think it's accurate. It's like, well, if I teach them well and give them the right values, they may be able to make it better. So I, I, I think it's, it's not something where like, cause the world is horrible. You never have children. That would be a weird um, if, if only good, yeah. if only good people don't have children, yes, <laughs> then the world gets worse and worse. Yeah, much quicker. <laughs> yeah, much quicker. Yeah, I I was having a discussion about this with a friend of mine who is a vegan, and she was saying, "What am I doing?" And it's the worst thing you can do for the environment. And I said, "When they turn eighteen, make them hand out a thousand condoms." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Render your child carbon neutral yeah. bus. <laughs> there's a, um, yeah, there's a karma scorecard that everyone has that you can start checking boxes. <laughs> Get them into sex ed. Right. Uh, <laughs> pressure them into becoming a sex, sex ed person or a serial killer. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Give to enough charity, you get to kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> what a disaster. So what's the new business that you've started? The new business is uh, a production company that, and I'm going to kind of focus more on what I love to do best in that storytelling. It's called uh, White Cat Entertainment. In fact, I wore the T-shirt for you. you it's a great T-shirt, is it? Yes. <laughs> it's like a, it's just to describe it. It's like a superhero cat with uh, wings strapped on his back. Yes. Um, sort of very nice. It's a very he's charming. Got a, he's got a jetpack on, and uh, I wanted to kind of create a company that uh, focused on dreams and storytelling and just uh, telling. Genre stories, kind of science fiction, fantasy, but with like an emotional core. And I thought I named it after my cat. Actually, I had a white cat named Avatar uh, well before the movies. <laughs> she was <laughs> well before the movies came out. I named her Avatar and she lived to almost 21 years old, which is very a long time for a cat. And she just passed away about two years ago. And she was always kind of like my writing companion where I would write at the computer. She would sit on her cat house with me like all day. And I felt like she was kind of part of my muse. So I kind of named the company after her. So you can see a picture of her on the website if you go to whitecatentertainment.com. I mean, that's a, that's really nice. I think there are maybe not enough companies that are that take science fiction and fantasy seriously because they see them as inherently silly or inherently yes. empty and mm -hmm. that has been the opposite of my experience with sci-fi and fantasy. I've always, you know, I'm a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. It's always been my escape from yes. the world. And it's not an escape from the world by virtue of ignoring human emotion. Though there's a, f a fair few of the golden age sci-fi people are a little bit um, hmm, spectrum-y in the way that they write. They'll write, mm -hmm. they'll write technologies and politics without writing human emotion. But the best right. sci-fi and the best fantasy is how people are and how people would be in these you know technological circumstances or these political circumstances and how it would change or not change the ways in which people relate to one another that's always been the fascinating thing for me and there's so many insights that you or that I have gotten in my life from quote unquote trashy fantasy and sci-fi yeah <laughs> absolutely I couldn't agree more I mean I probably have given away more sci-fi and fantasy books than I've been able to keep just because of space. But 
you know, I've been reading sci-fi and fantasy since I was a teenager and I'm still reading it. In fact, I just, uh, I'm halfway through that book you recommended, The Warrior's Apprentice. Oh, so yes. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually reading that now. And uh, I'm one of the people that actually, if you recommend a book to me, I'll actually read it. I mean, so. <laughs> now you're my favorite person in the whole world. <laughs> because I'm just as excited to find new fantasy or science fiction uh, stories. And I wanted to really focus that on, on the company because that's always what I've wanted to do. I mean, I love talking about movies, but I, when I look at like what I've done and what I want to focus on, it's really been telling stories. I'm trying to get a new storytelling podcast off the ground. I've got another season of my horror podcast that... Uh, I'm working on and then just working on the comics and kind of putting them all together under one banner. It's interesting you mentioned Patreon. I'm still a little trying to figure that out right now because it's based on the one podcast that I haven't launched yet. So I can't watch the Patreon. But Until you've launched the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, um, I'm trying to figure out a way to get to the Patreon where the Patreon supports the whole company of all the projects, so uh, it, which is a little tricky because I want there to be regular rewards, but if they're spread out over multiple projects, I'm not quite sure how to make that work just yet. Yeah, it's that 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 that's an interesting idea having it, uh, a Patreon to support a company because you'd have you'd have to think about the ways in which uh, people would feel you know if you think about medieval patronage you had a, a wealthy lord and then they would see an artist that they liked and go oh this artist should keep making stuff i'm going to give the artist bed and board and then uh, the, the artist will come and have dinner with me and we'll have an interesting conversation and and then when the artist puts out a an exhibition i can go to the exhibition and f look at the pictures and feel really satisfied that i've made this possible that i've midwifed these ideas into the world that i've been a pivotal part of that process so when you talk about your ideas and your love of storytelling and the company that you have built i'm like yeah i would support that that's a that's a great thing that's a thing that i believe in that's a thing that i have uh a fascination with and a, a faith in and I would like to be part of the process of bringing that into the world but when well, you say first, thank you oh, a, <laughs> when you when you say to someone oh will you support my company the mm -hmm. my immediate reaction is well what doesn't it work as a company well, yes. <laughs> get get backers get investors get, yes. have, have mm -hmm. it be transactional so it's some some way of bridging that gap between the idea of what a company is and this idea of your project of bringing more of these stories, more of these insights, more of these different worlds into this world. Yes. And uh, I, I was trying to figure out all of the ways that will work together. And one of the things that uh, really helped was getting all of the artwork because the artwork can always inspire you too. Like, like I had multiple artists working on like say the podcast logos and even like the comic book, but when you put them all together, it still looks like everything belongs under the same company. So it, it's one of those great things. Like uh, whenever you make a big project, like a movie or something, and you have a bunch of artists working with you that may have different talents and, and different perspectives, but if you could kind of put them all together under one umbrella with one voice, that's what uh, really makes me excited too. Like you could have multiple projects over 
say, podcasts and comic books and maybe even film or TV, but they all kind of feel like they're in the same family. I mean, that that kind of excites me. Family resemblances. Yeah. And that 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 shared blood between mm-hmm. projects, I think, is a really nice thing. It's a, one of the things that I enjoy very much about being part of the Bugle um, podcast and now The Last Post, which is my daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate <laughs> dimension uh, that is a spin-off <laughs> of the Bugle. Um, but it, it's being part of that group of people and that group of ideas and that that vibe and that aesthetic, the the feeling of, of belonging, which is quite nice for a comedian who is otherwise quite a solo isolated creature (laughs) very much so and uh that's especially when you're on the road there's no lonelier place than being on the road when you're driving to a gig or if you're like at an airport just waiting for your flight to go somewhere that you'll sit in a hotel for another six hours (laughs) before you actually perform or go to a club Um, it is a very solo solitary lifestyle for sure I feel like comedy, there's a set of, I mean, pathologies, not in the disease sense, but in the sort of your structural psychology setup that brings you into comedy is if you have this, you know, you have a certain set of qualities that tend to bring people to comedy and they are made so much worse by the lifestyle of comedy. You take somebody who really values love and feedback and community Mm -hmm. and connection and you take them to the middle of nowhere and you give them that dialed up to a thousand percent for one hour and then you leave them alone. (laughs) Now you have nothing else to do but think about that hour for the next 23 of them. (laughs) Just just a way to take a set of fragilities and put a hammer and chisel right on the cracks and just... Slam it down. So where yeah. can uh, where can people support your work? Uh, they could go to whitecatentertainment.com. The Patreon is up, but it's it's inactive. I think I had one uh, patron that jumped the gun, but I'm not telling people to, to support it just yet until um, I can get the next uh, podcast up and running. But if you go to whitecatentertainment.com, you could click through to the Kickstarter. It'll go to May through May 31st, and we're getting close, but we do need help to uh, get it to the finish line. That's Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master, as we talked about before. It's a really fun action comedy about a small-time crook who uh, accidentally gets mixed up with an ancient battle between a good and evil fought since the days of ancient China. But it, I gave it like a really cool like kind of um, 80s vibe to it where it feels like an, like an 80s buddy comedy almost. I love that. And it also explores like a little bit of toxic masculinity and what's it like if you're angry and uh, violent all the time, can you find peace in your life? And how would you actually go about doing that when you literally start out at a fight club? So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to see this. Uh, I really want to see this come into the world. So if you have mm-hmm. a, a moment and if you have the time and extra, extra cash in your pocket, I know this is a particularly difficult time for a lot of people. But yes. If you want to see the Kung Fu Dragon Master come to fruition, uh, go and drop a, a small donation to to that or a big donation. I don't know. You could be a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> thank you yeah, so they much. Could, we, we could have a medieval patron out there. We don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if there are any Medici's listening, yes. <laughs> step up. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having tea with me. Thanks, Alice. 
This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your hands. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie your ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Loudly rifle, doll, loudly rifle,